Well, welcome to the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast. We're your hosts, Coleman Ford and Sean Wilhite. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Crawford, and we're here outside in wonderful San Diego, California weather. Yeah, so it's a great day here in San Diego, and we've gotten a chance to really connect with a lot of scholars in ancient Christian studies. Something that we're really excited about is just to talk to Matthew Crawford, uh, who's studying, uh, has done his studies over in Durham, uh, and particularly just to talk about um, things like the publication process, the publishing process, the relationship that you build with publishers, uh, things like this, and then also navigating that world. Uh, but then also we hope to see kind of how Dr. Crawford's journey has, uh, where it's taken him, and hopefully provide some wisdom uh, for listeners from that. So, uh, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah, if we, if we could start off, it would be great just to kind of hear your journey on why did you begin studying uh, patristic literature or ancient Christian literature? Uh, were there personal books or, or important books that you're reading, pers- your personal journey within this field? Uh, maybe key thinkers? Uh, you know, what, what were those things that influenced you to move in this direction? I think the, uh, the entryway for me, sort of the, the gateway drug, as it were, um, was Augustine. And Augustine's Confessions, reading Confessions, um, it's t- to this day is one of the most important books I think I've ever read, one of the most profound books I've ever read. Um, so reading Augustine is useful, especially Confessions, because it's a text that's more accessible to um, modern readers. It's, it's not like most ancient texts. In some ways it is, but in some ways it's, it feels very modern. Um, so uh, that reading about Augustine introduced me to this whole world that I kind of knew existed but didn't know much about. And um, when I was at Southern, I, I did a class on Augustine, uh, actually my first semester there, I think. So I got a, a fuller taste of Augustine in, in, that, in that class. And then actually in Peter Gentry's advanced Greek class, um, at that time at least, he had us reading the Epistle of Diognetus. And Diognetus is a similar kind of text in that the way he talks about his own faith is something that is easy to immediately relate to, but it's also clear that he's speaking out of an ancient context that's so different from our own. So for me, Augustine and then Diognetus as well were windows into this strange land that I I didn't know hardly anything about, but Mm -hmm. found intrinsically fascinating and wanted to pursue further. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's that's where it began for me, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure Augustine would be one of the key influential thinkers for, for many. Um, what about your time at Durham? How, how did that continue to blossom? Uh, maybe talking about your time with uh, Louis Ayres and some of your interaction with uh, Francis Watson as well. Yeah, when I um, was coming to the end of my time at Southern and I decided I wanted to do doctoral studies, um, there was really no question in my mind that I wanted to pursue patristics. And not just as a biblical studies person reading the ancient sources, but um, a proper, thoroughly, classically patristic degree is what I wanted to do in early Christianity. So I was um, was doing what everyone does, probably sending out cold emails to lots and lots of professors (laughs) at various institutions. Lots of them never even respond, and I understand that they can't always do so. Um, I uh, was talking with another friend at Southern, a doctoral student, who said, there's this guy Lewis Ayers, and he's written this book that's really amazing. Uh, maybe you should consider that. So uh, before I'd even read Lewis's book, I sent him an email, and uh, Lewis gave me uh, a response that was different from anyone else I had contacted. So he responded with 
his cell phone number and said, um, why don't you call me in the next few days and we can talk. Um, so he was immediately open and inviting and, and it was clear that he, he wanted to help me in a kind of disinterested way. So he wasn't just interested in me becoming his student. He, he gave me lots of advice about all kinds of programs. So this place, you know, you might want to consider here for this reason, but it has this strike against it and sort of walked me through lots of different programs and gave me lots of general advice about how to consider these things. So from that conversation, uh, it was it was obvious to me that Lewis was the choice, um, of yeah. the, the best choice I could possibly hope to have. And then I, I read his book on Nicaea, um, and that was a defining experience as well. Um, he was doing historical theological scholarship in both in a, a thoroughly historical and deeply theologically informed way, uh, and I, I found that uh, very attractive and enticing. So, um, so I ended up going to Durham. We actually went to Durham at the same time. He started there in 2009. I was in the first group of students he had in 2009, uh, and uh, did a doctoral degree there, finished in 2012, and um, again was very fortunate to be able to start a postdoc right after that. Mm -hmm. Francis Watson um, had, so the, the way it works in, I think this is a, one distinction between British universities, probably in most American contexts, in that in the last 10 years in British universities, there's loads and loads of pressure now. Uh, it's like written into job descriptions that lecturers, readers, and professors will be out applying for grants. You're expected to sort of raise money to fund your own research, mm -hmm. which is, I think, kind of always been the case in the sciences, but increasingly it's the so in the humanities as well. So all the professors are expected to be regularly sending out grant applications to fund their own research, which usually also includes funding for postdocs and PhD studentships as well. Mm -hmm. So Francis had applied for one of these giant grants from the Arts and Humanities Research Council of the UK, which is the government body that deals with arts and humanities for giving out these sorts of things. Um, and he had actually been working with a recent PhD grad at Durham as he was writing the application with the intent of hiring this other guy for the postdoc when he came through. Mm -hmm. But as these things often uh, work out, the application process took a lot longer than he expected. So it was like a year later than he expected before he finally heard back from it. And uh, the other guy had gone by that point. And uh, it just came about right at the exact time I was finishing up my thesis. And I didn't have any other options at the time, actually. So it was, it was a real lifesaver for me. So it worked out. I applied and interviewed and got that started that in 2012. And um, in my third year, about now, it comes to an end. It's August, August 2015. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's been a good journey. Yeah, and that's good. it's 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 great to hear the some of the process, even how to choose a PhD mm -hmm. program. You can get inside there, and even the process by which British universities are a little bit different than the American mm -hmm. universities and so forth. Yeah, I was going to say the running theme that has that we've seen with um, scholars who are doing good work, even young scholars that are doing good work, um, is is a champion that's behind them as the advisor. Uh, you're speaking to Lewis Ayers and um, just having that um, relationship which shapes you and, and models you. And so I think a good question just to ask you, Matt, would be, you know, what are some things that you feel like you have imbibed from Ayers, maybe some things that you've taken away that have influenced the way that you write, that you think, that you interact with people on a personal level, a scholarly level. Uh, what are some things that you think your mentor has kind of you know, rubbed off on you? 
Yeah, well, I guess initially, um, it's a really inadequate to answer the question <laughs> because of what it implies. But uh, some of the things I've learned, one of one of the most important lessons is that, um, well, Lewis and, and his friend Michelle Barnes as well are, have both been critical of modern, the attempts of modern theologians to retrieve the past that don't do sufficient historical justice to the past. Mm -hmm. So mining the past for what's useful to you without taking the time to patiently listen and try to understand what they're saying in a, in a genuine openness to be informed and learn new things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that I think that shapes uh, the work that I've done, that shapes um, the book. I mean, my, my, process, my, my book really grew as I learned more and more about Cyril. The shape of the whole project really changed. Mm -hmm. um, as I, because I tried to model it on what I took to be fundamental and important to him, which wasn't the same sorts of questions and categories that lots of other modern scholars have been bringing to him to try and interpret him. So being patient enough to properly listen to the past is a key, a key task, I mm -hmm. think, if you want to be able to really engage in this, in this process of retrieval. Um, also, just the basic theological stance for conviction that theology is best done by retrieving the past rather mm -hmm. than um, simply opening up scripture today and trying to put it together. Um, the uh, kind of operating theological method is that um, you, you, well, for Lewis specifically, you pick one key thinker from the past and you sort of invest all of your time and energy into that one person and get to know them really, really well. And then the useful thing about that is then for the rest of your scholarly career, you always have that figure as a conversation partner in the back of your mind um, because you know you're so well informed with their fault world that um, that both shapes you and gives you an ongoing dialogue partner as you encounter new ideas and, mm. and uh, always have that voice in the back of your mind. Mm. So those are some of the some of the key themes. Yeah. And just in publishing, in Lewis really encourages his, his people to publish. His um, Well, I can remember one of the very first meetings I had with him, he said, uh, I'll not let you write a dissertation in England, we call it a DC thesis, but a dissertation or thesis that's not publishable, because mm -hmm. these days you simply have to have a publishable thesis wow. to get a job. Mm -hmm. And he said his basic advice is if you want to have the strongest possible chance in the job market when you're finishing, you should aim to have two published peer review articles by that point. Uh, to set yourself apart from the pack. Um, so he sets high standards, but also works with you to help you achieve that. So some doctoral supervisors see their work as really being just getting you to the end of the PhD. Lewis sees his, his, um, his supervisory work as producing people that are going to continue to shape the field for the next generation. And so that's why he expects his people to be publishing and trains them to do so, so that you can then, he ends up shaping the entire field and current um, through all of his doctoral students. Mm. That's helpful. That's great. And <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, the encouragement to write as if you are public, uh, going to publish the thesis, you know, whether or not it happens, uh, of course, I think Lewis expects that it will. Um, that's something I think we've seen with professors and mentors that I know personally have shaped me is that um, you know, you're not here to do a doctoral degree in three years or four years and, <clears throat> excuse me, and move, <clears throat> let me start over, I'm choking. <clears throat> 
me the Heimlich. Yeah, yeah. give me the Heimlich. I'm going to edit this part out. I guess. <coughs> I this no, this will, is this yeah, is all this raw, is, man. Yeah, all raw. <laughs> um, yeah. We'll only edit you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Go, man. Just get another chance. Okay. So something I've noticed with advisors that have shaped us is that same mentality and uh, not that you're not going to do a doctoral degree in three to four years and just call it done and um, I mean you're going to do the dissertation you're going to do your work uh, and, until it's until it's good and right and perfect you know as, as perfect as it can be and um, you know something you know particularly Michael Haken has said in kind of recent conversations is that um, you're not just here to get in and get out as fast as possible and he really is discouraged by programs that make that kind of a, an, a facet of what they're they're doing. Uh, I mean, if you're going to do this, it's a journey. It's a dissertation process, a thesis process that uh, should demand the highest quality. And um, yeah, and, and with an eye towards changing the field. Yeah, a, a little nudge, a little, a little, just a little dot that hopefully will push it. And um, so that's that's good to hear. Yeah, the yeah. doctorate isn't just a hoop to jump through, but it's the first stage, and in some ways the most formative stage for the rest of your career, search and trajectory you're going to be on for the rest of your life. So it's useful to see it not just in utilitarian terms, mm -hmm. as getting a degree after your name, or getting a job afterwards, mm -hmm. but it, it, it enculturates you into a certain world. Mm -hmm. you know, area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we can, I'd like to transition a little bit to talk about uh, some of your works. Uh, I have with me, uh, or with us, your Oxford, your, your recent Oxford monograph, Cyril of Alexandria's Trinitarian Theology of Scripture. And just for our listeners, this is a text that I would encourage you to pick up, at least encourage you to, to read major portions out of this, uh, especially if you're interested in Cyril. Um, or interested in just how early fathers uh, engaged Trinitarian thought, understood Trinitarian thought. Um, Cyril is part of the pro-Nicene era um, and, and part of pro-Nicene theology. And his, his views of scripture come out in this, uh, in this book, uh, his views of Trinitarianism, uh, and, and Matt, Matt just did a, did a great job with this. And if you wouldn't mind just kind of telling us a little bit about the project. Um, yeah. So it really began for me when I was still at Southern. Um, I was with a friend in the library, and he was flipping through Brevard Child's book on Isaiah. Maybe it's Isaiah's Christian Scripture or something like that. And he has a book in there. I mean, I'm sorry, a chapter in the book on Cyril. And he says uh, something like the last monograph on Cyril and Isaiah, or the Old Testament at all, was Alexander Kerrigan's book from back in the 50s. And no one's really touched it since then. Someone needs to update this. And you know how when you're applying to doctoral programs, you're you're just ravenous for those sorts of comments. Like, no one's done this, do this. And you're like, I'll do that. So mm -hmm. that was more or less what I did. Um, and initially um, thought the project was going to be about uh, Cyril's exegetical methodology. So at, at Southern, I had had... I took some patristics classes from Haken, but I was still thinking about patristic exegesis largely and the kinds of categories I think you get when you're doing biblical studies and think about going back into the fathers. So I went in thinking this was going to be a book about patristic exegesis and methodology with Cyril as its focus. And as I, the first thing I did uh, when I got to Durham was I spent the first six months or so just reading lots and lots and lots of Cyril and taking lots of notes on that. And what I kept noticing was that there's a theological context that's driving his exegesis. 
and that if you want to if you want to understand what he's doing exegetically, it's not going to make any sense unless you step back um, one step back and look at the intellectual context this is coming from. So I ended up writing about his theology of scripture, and I suggest there's two foci to that. On the one hand, there's a distinct theology of revelation, and this is where the pro-Nicene element comes in. When I went into this project, I didn't at all expect that it would overlap as much as it does with Lewis's own work on pro-Nicene Trinitarian stuff. Um, but there was this sort of happy confluence between Lewis's work on that that I was able to draw on, and the fact that Cyril himself is part of this tradition. So his theology of Revelation draws deeply on this pro-Nicene tradition, and in some respects it um, goes back to the very earliest days of Christianity, and its emphasis on the sun as the primary locus and object and content of divine revelation. But Cyril's pro-Nicene thought shapes that in a distinct way, in that um, because there's an ontological solidarity between the Father and the Son, the Son is the fullness of the divine unveiling, full stop. There's nothing about God that's sort of hidden from the Son. So when the Son unveils the Father, it's a full divine unveiling. Not a, not a full divine unveiling in that God is still incomprehensible, but um, it's a divine unveiling in the fullest possible sense. Um, and the interesting thing I came across in Cyril that I wasn't expecting is that for him, that Christological principle becomes a canonical principle as well, mm. such that the Gospels rise above the rest of Scripture as uh, the center and the focus um, of, of all of the New Testament and indeed all of, all of Scripture, because the revelation in Jesus is not just another prophetic divine indwelling, um, like you find with the Apostles or the Old Testament prophets, mm -hmm. but it's, it's the incarnation. It's God himself stepping into human history and speaking uh, via a human body. So uh, that's the theology of revelation aspect of it, and then I, uh, the last two chapters are about his theology of exegesis. So in, in broad terms, the theology of revelation is something that proceeds from the Father through the Son and the Spirit, and uh, the theology of exegesis is a, the re mirror reverse of that. So exegesis takes place in the Spirit, by the Spirit you see the Son in Scripture, whatever text you might happen to be reading, and then uh, through the Son you come to the Father. Mm. And this results in a process of um, uh, a twofold uh, progress. Progress both in virtue, because the Son is the exemplar of all virtue, and uh, progress in understanding, because by beholding the Son through a process of faith seeking understanding, you come to understand more and more of the basic baptismal confession mm -hmm. with which you begin your Christian faith. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not at all the book that I expected to write when I set out to do it. Um, in fact, uh, in the very last stages, uh, there were major revisions. So in, I finished the book in, or the thesis, in March of the third, my third year in Durham. And as late as November, uh, I was making major changes, like flipping the entire outline on its head. So the chapter, uh, current chapter order in the book is actually pretty much the opposite of what I, I wrote it in. I wrote chapter five first and thought that that was going to be the first chapter. And it only occurred to me really late in the game that you know the whole project makes sense if, if it's flipped on its head, and mm. it actually it works a lot better that way. So, mm. um, and I think that's one of the enjoyable things about spending three years on a single project like this is mm. mm -hmm. watching how at times it seems like you're not even the one in control of the process. You're being mm. led along by the hand and understanding more and more, and as you understand more, um, 
you begin to see how the moving parts of the project fit together, which allows you to get a better grasp of the whole. Um, so it's it was an it was an enjoyable process. It was a lot of work, um, but um, I hope that uh, I hope maybe there's something worthwhile. In it. Yeah, mm. yeah, no, mm. good. And one one of the things that that and you, and you brought it up, it was just it was it was wonderful because I didn't, I didn't realize this was in serial, but just his language about the from the father, uh, from the father through the son and the spirit. And then as the readers reading or coming to the scriptures and that, that reversal process is then by the spirit experiencing the son to apply to the father. And that, that, that language there was, was, was rich. I didn't realize that was in Cyril. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, lots of people focus on Cyril as a Christological exegen. Mm-hmm. Robert Wilkin and um, there's a French scholar as well. Lots of people have picked up on Cyril's Christological exegesis, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I, I think that Christological exegesis appears somewhat arbitrary when it's abstracted from this Trinitarian theological context. Mm. So I try to take that emphasis, that this point that they've rightly seen of Christological exegesis and situate it in this broader um, drama of divine redemption, mm. of divine unveiling, and, and human salvation. Mm. Right. Yeah, well, definitely writing this book was no no small feat at all. Uh, you know, we'd love to hear maybe a little bit about what you learned about yourself as a thinker, maybe what you learned about just just being a writer and a researcher, but even would you just, you know, kind of give us a little bit of a vision on the publication process, you know, kind of what you went through with that as well. Well, on the, on, on the publication part of the question, your initial, the, the most important thing probably for you initially trying to publish your thesis or dissertation would be your doctoral supervisor or in the U.S. maybe your full doctoral committee. In the U.K. we don't have a doctoral committee. Um, you're assessed and you're, we call it a viva in the U.S. it's a defense, but you're assessed by two objective external examiners that have had no input on your project. So in the U.K. it's your doctoral supervisor and the reports from those two examiners that are crucial elements um, in, in getting your foot in the door with publishers. In the U.S., it's more your doctoral committee, probably. Uh, but they're really your entryway. And uh, it's it's helpful to write with a view towards publication, like mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier. And those sorts of people who are established figures in this field can give you advice on what sorts of publishers would be suitable for your project, because not every project fits every publisher. And there's Publishers have distinct profiles, series have distinct profiles. And sometimes you may have a perfectly good piece of work, but if you submit it to the wrong sorts of series, it just doesn't fit, it's going to get rejected. And that's nothing, that's not a mark against the work, it's just that it's a bad fit. So um, it takes um, knowing the profile of various publishers in the series well, and then relying on the kinds of advice you get from the supervisors and examiners or the committee. Um, and, uh, at places like this, I mean, at conferences like this, publishers are, are fishing for projects. So mm-hmm. this is uh, a good opportunity to make initial contacts. And um, the way it works, oh, I've only had an experience publishing a book with OUP, so I'm not sure how it would work elsewhere. But with OUP, um, well, and there's even a distinction between OUP UK and US. They have different mm-hmm. editors mm-hmm. and different series. Um, so for OUP UK, uh, I wrote to the overall religion editor and on, on Lewis's advice, and he sent back a packet of material with guidelines. And if you want to submit a proposal, 
here's the list of all the things you need to submit. And um, it, it takes some time. You know, you have to spend some time writing these things up and sending it in. Um, and then, especially for your first project, sometimes it takes a long time from submitting it to finally publishing it. So I made initial contact with OUP in May, I think, 2012. Mm -hmm. And the book finally appeared in August of 2014. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it can take wow. a long time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I didn't right. even have official confirmation that it was accepted until probably September 2013. Mm. So over a year from when I initially submitted it mm. to when I finally said yes. They said yes, this is going to yeah. be published and here's a contract. So you have to be prepared for quite a process. Not mm. all publishers take that long. OUP is. Um, everyone sort of expects that it takes about that long, two years from initial submission to publication, I think is probably in there. Um, so be prepared for it to take a while. That, that can be... Um, that can create difficulties and complications because when you're coming out, you need a job, and the part of getting a job is being able to say this is um, under contract or mm -hmm. forthcoming or something like that. So there sometimes is, uh, it pays off to be strategic about these things. Sometimes it's worthwhile to go with a publisher that operates a bit more quickly um, so that you can have that on your CV and the useful thing for me about this postdoc is that it gave me a three-year window in which to take my time to really get this thing out and, um, and and not feel as rushed as I would have otherwise. But the time the time delay does have its own benefits. So one of the things I did after it was accepted was I worked back through the entire manuscript, um, start to finish. Uh, in the process, I'm not sure how this happened, but it ended up growing by 20,000 words, mm. and uh, mm. added a, a, none of it. The only I only made a couple of major additions of like five or ten page sections, but there were lots of changes I made throughout, rewriting sentences, smoothing out transitions. Mm. Mm. So uh, I, I was I've been told before there's no such thing as good writing, there's only good rewriting, good editing, and I mm. think that's, that's the case, at least for me that's the case. Mm. It took going through it with a fine tooth comb that second time um, really, really slowly to, um, to, to improve it, so I hope it's a better book today as a result. Mm. And, and another, um, we were talking earlier before you started reporting about different publishers, I mean, again there's differences in strategy, so some publishers like OUP, it's going to be a very high price volume. Um, there's not going to be a big run. They're not going to do a big run initially. It may never sell a huge deal of copies, but if it's in a certain series, um, libraries, big research libraries subscribe to series. So you can be certain that your book, because it's in the series, is going to get into all of the major libraries and will be there the next time someone's writing on this topic or like that the work. So it's a way of making sure libraries get your copies, but it's not going to get into the hands of as many in their own bookshelves. On the other hand, if you go with another publisher that's maybe not quite as academically prestigious, they may do just as good work, but they don't have the sort of academic um, cachet as an OUP or a CEP, but they'll do a much larger initial run. Your book will probably get into the hands of a lot more people um, because it's much more reasonably priced and it's sort of out there and people can get it. Um, so there, there can be a trade-off between how, how you're trying to influence the broader world and whether you are wanting to go for, say, royalties and lots of people having your book, or um, probably less royalties, fewer people having your book, but maybe maybe more prestige. Mm. 
there's kind of a trade-off you have to, to weigh, and right. I, that's that's an issue that each person has to weigh differently. I think and one comes up with the same mm-hmm. answer. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that that insight. And as part of the center, of course, we want to encourage scholarship. We want to encourage these kind of things of publication and thinking through these things and helping potential contributors think through these things, PhD students, others as well. Uh, so just to wrap things up here, Matt, you know, something that we love to ask and get your perspective on is, you know, based on your experience, if you had two minutes to sit down with, you know, someone who was considering patristic studies or just started patristic studies <clears throat> or just a PhD, maybe in ancient Christianity, something to that effect, what would you tell them? What is something that you maybe you've learned or you said, okay, if I could go back and start the process over, do something differently? If you had two minutes to sit down with an individual, uh, what would you say? First would be um, don't don't neglect your languages. Start languages early mm-hmm. and just keep at it. For me, at least, there, there's not yet come a time when I thought I could finally stop language study. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's that's fundamental. That's a basic skill of the trade that uh, you simply have to have. Not everyone is a linguist, right? And, and that's that's fine. You don't have to um, do pure philological work to be able to operate in this field. But there is a basic competency in the ancient languages and modern languages, French and German at least, that you need to have if you want to be able to um, to publish in, in early Christianity. So, so don't neglect your languages. Get started early, keep at it, um, and uh, it's, it's difficult grunt work at times, but you just have to stick with it. Um, and secondly, don't, don't be so myopically focused on your own topic that you neglect broader trends in the guild. Um, and the best way is probably to, to avoid that is to stay abreast of other publications. So. Um, and that one of the best ways to stay abreast of publications is to read the journals in the field. So um, it pays to just every time there's a new issue of the Journal of Early Christian Studies or Journal of Late Antiquity or Journal of Theological Studies, um, skim the articles. You don't have to, of course, read all of them. I think the book reviews are especially important. Book reviews are a way of staying abreast of scholarship in the field, um, knowing what's there, getting a sense of what's out there. So that when you're in an interview or a conversation, even if you haven't read, Book X, you at least know that Book X is there and it says this. Mm-hmm. And so you can have a broader sense of the bigger world, um, which is key for framing your own project and making it more significant. The significance of your project depends upon the, the number of different conversations you can bring it into and the depth um, at which you engage in those conversations. And if you're not engaging in the broader world, broader guild, you may simply not know what those other conversations are. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what I found and what I think a lot of people find as they write their dissertation is that towards the end especially, your, your conclusions don't fundamentally change, but your sense of the significance of those conclusions does significantly deepen, especially in the later stages of the project. So you begin to see how to bring what you've done into conversation with all these other various conversations going on. Um, and that's when you can really make an important contribution to the field. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. And especially the language part, I know <clears throat> in my master's work I was tempted uh, once I'd done the languages, you know, the requirement, you know, okay, I'm done, you know, I've, I've got it. And uh, I think 
probably others can attest to the fact that no, it's it's a lifelong journey, and uh, some are more gifted than others in linguist stuff. But uh, I think ultimately, yeah, it's a good encouragement just to think about that and uh, appreciate that feedback, appreciate that perspective, and uh, that challenge. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hey, it's it's a challenge for me. Yeah. We're still every day doing it. Yeah. Yeah, well, great, Matt. We definitely appreciate you joining us. We just we, we just feel enriched. We hope our, our <coughs> listeners will be encouraged by this. That's right. Yeah, that's Thanks, right. Guys, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, and we look forward to future work, future interaction, maybe um, down the line, some uh, some great things to come. Yeah, that would be so, great. And uh, hope that things continue to go well and prosper at the center. Yep. Thank yeah, you. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us again. This is uh, the podcast for the Center for Ancient Christian Studies. And uh, we'll see you next time.